be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I'm actually looking at you in triplicate. This is my third preach in a row. I'm just getting used to this passage, and I'm about to inflict it upon you. Uh, but the good news for you is that I have to dash from this service to catch an aeroplane on time so I can go home and remember what my wife looks like. So uh, I, I need to speed up is what I'm telling myself and keep an eye on the clock for very personal and totally selfish reasons. But uh, I bring you greetings. Um, I come from the UK. I come from uh, a rather busted town called Birkenhead, which is on the other side of the River Mersey from Liverpool. And so if you're wondering, yes, I have been to the cavern. I did meet the Beatles. And my sister even went out with Paul McCartney's brother. <laughs> and as I said in the earlier service, if you want to touch my jacket just to get closer, please feel free, but I will be dashing through your ranks uh, as you do it. I've traveled around quite a bit since those early days. Uh, I've done this my stint as a Baptist pastor, and then I was ordained uh, Church of England minister in 1981 in Manchester Cathedral, intriguingly by the great-grandson of William Booth. So I've got all kinds of traditions floating in and out of me. But uh, I was a curate in Bolton up in the north, now as far north as Sheffield, and I was also a rector in the East Midlands in the county of Leicestershire. But in 1990, uh, I joined a bishop called Morris Maddox, who was the former Bishop of Selby, in our country, that makes him the assistant to the Archbishop of York, who at the time was a guy called Donald Coggan, who some of you may have heard of. I got to know him well, and I, I preached with him a number of times in my life uh, while he was still with us. Morris Maddox had a passion. He wanted to see Christian healing as a normal part of the Church of England's ministry, not a charismatic obsession, not something that funny Christians get into, or it's the rector's hobby, but normal. And I love the word normal, uh, in especially in reference to the Christian healing ministry. And I worked with that outfit for 24 years. I was actually its director for 20 years in succeeding the bishop. But uh, five and a half years ago when I turned 65, I really felt God calling me to give up the day job before I was asked to and uh, set up a new resource, which I'm the director and founder of, called To Restore. And principally, I work to help churches that have, have got damaged by one reason or another recover their hearts and move on to flourish in the way that God wants them to. And I've been over here in America uh, four weeks ago, in Florida and in Colorado, actually team building. And I'm back here in May in South Carolina, doing something of the same. So I, I come to the States a fair bit. I've come here in the last 20 odd years over 100 separate times. I should have citizenship, <laughs> but I haven't quite <laughs> made it yet. Now, this passage I'd like to open up for you this morning briefly from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, is a tough passage. It, it's full of quite a lot of hard challenges to us. And yet I think it's got some really good stuff for us to learn, which is why I gave the title to it of Everyone Needs Compassion. Uh, I need it, you need it. 
Because one day or other in our lives, we're going to need that compassion from people. Especially if we, if we mess up or get stuff wrong. Or we're going through things I don't understand. Or, I don't know, I'm reacting in ways I, I can't handle. And I need people to be on my side rather than opposed to me. Do you know those kind of moments in your life? I just need somebody to think there's more to you than what I see. And we stick with it. Such precious times they are. When I was a curate in that church in Bolton, uh, I was there for four and a half years. It was described to me as a liberal Catholic church, and yet we had 46 prayer groups, or home prayer groups, in that church. And we went from, I, don't, I ran the daughter church, and God grew it from about 20 people to about 400 people. We met in a tin tabernacle with the roof waving to God when the wind came down. <laughs> and the overhead single bar electric heating would freeze your hair or what you got left of it. And you had to come down early some mornings in winter for the Holy Communion service and defrost the wine. Because <laughs> it was so cold in that place. One Easter Sunday, we had an amazing moment. Because in that door to church, we had so much hostility. They just didn't want to grow. They were quite happy to stay in their 1662 land. I don't mind that, but they didn't want to grow either. And it was hard going. Uh, the enrolling member of the Mother's Union used to give me a really hard time. That's not a critique of the Mother's Union. Don't go off me in my first five minutes of this talk. It's just how it was uh, back in those days. But one Easter Sunday, a nine-year-old girl comes to the front of our church. It was all arranged. And I stood with her because that's what she wanted. And she gave her testimony of being healed of leukemia. Totally, 100% healed. Of a fairly vicious form of leukemia that had taken the life of her older sister and that she had been in hospital more or less from the day she was born going through different things. And uh, I had the privilege, and I'm sure along with a cast of thousands, to pray for her and lay hands on her but I was the last one to lay hands on her for healing because the next morning she woke up without leukemia and her grandmother wanted her to come to this tiny tin tabernacle of a church to give thanks to God for her healing. And so instead of having World War III every Sunday, we had this eight, nine-year-old girl simply and honestly, without mentioning individuals, gave thanks to Jesus for her healing. I thought, great. We had a lovely Easter service and we're exiting with the recessional hymn, which is Thine be the glory, risen conquering sun, with a little bit of the Huel, David, in the chorus line. Bit of Welsh umph, as we call it. Right in front of me is the choir and the last member of the choir, the one immediately in front of me, who I will call Betty, not her name, as we're going up singing this hymn, turns to me. And this is what she said, you don't have to bring little girls to this church with made-up stories about healing to push our church into the healing ministry, you know. And then turned away from me and said, thine be the glory. <laughs> and I'm the crumpled curate trying to handle that as I went out at the end of the service. I went to see my training minister, a guy called Fred Cook, and I moaned to him about it. And he said, well, 
You started the healing ministry in the church. You go fix this. You go see her. Go see Betty. And I have to make a confession here. I'm frightened of Betty. <laughs> you know, in our, in our country, we call her a piece of work. <laughs> She's pretty strong. She's very talented, by the way, and pretty tough. But I got up the courage, and I went down to her house, started knocking on the door, and it was like she'd been waiting. The door opened. She took one look at me and said, I knew you would come. I knew it was only a matter of time. Come in, she said. And I walked down that long corridor you have in these semi-detached houses. And she's all the time speaking with her back to me as I go down this corridor to that room at the back you keep for best or the execution of curates, it felt like that day. <laughs> and she's saying to me, I knew you would come. And you have to imagine, by the way, I've got long hair down to here and a big long beard. You know, I was a kind of Jesus people type back in the day. And she said, I knew you would come. I just want you to know before we go any further in this conversation, I don't like you. I thought, honest, open, telling me what's on her mind. I don't like it, but she's telling me. And she sits down. She says, what have you got this long hair for? And that beard, you trying to be Jesus or something? She was close. <laughs> I think we're all trying to be like Christ, aren't we? And she said, listen, I knew you'd come. And I'm trying to get my, my word in, you know. And uh, when she starts drinking her coffee, I, I thought, this is my moment. This is my chance. So I said, Betty, Annie, that girl who gave her testimony on Sunday, it's real, genuine. I can introduce you to Josephine, her grandmother who's in the Mother's Union with you. She can confirm it. And I'm blurting all this out, you know, for my self-vindication moment. You know what I mean? Because we do have doubters in church about God's capacity to do miracles today. We do. We're going to be honest about these things. So I'm blurting my piece out. She finishes her swig and looks at me and says, I know that. You do? I do. And I'm thinking, well, what's the argument you're giving me? She said, I had a daughter once. And she died of leukemia when she was nine. You know what's coming, don't you? And that girl of nine stands in our church and she tells us that God healed her of leukemia and the question on my heart from 35 years ago comes back into my mind. Why did he heal that girl and not mine? What's the answer? There isn't one, is there? There might be a few cheap ones, but there isn't one. She said, I asked the vicar back then, and he gave me some rubbish that God so loved my little girl, he took her early home to heaven. That made me so angry, she said, I punched him in the face. <laughs> I kind of backed off a bit, you know. <laughs> she said, I made a vow. Did you? I said, yes, she said, I made this vow. Listen to this, 35 years old. And the vow she made is, I am never going to let a priest or a minister get the better of me ever again. And she said, but the puzzle is, how can you control the pastor in your church? Get your notebooks out. <laughs> and she said, this is what I decided. I decided that I would become, I'd work at it, but I would become the enrolling member of the Mother's Union in my church. It took me eight years to get there, but I did. And I put all my friends on the committee. 
So when curates like you come along and say, don't you think we should improve the heating? I oppose it. When the curates will come along and say, should we reupholster the floor instead of linoleum? Yeah, linoleum. You know, old linoleum. You know, doing its own version of praising God in the wind. We opposed it, she said. Nothing's changed in this church in 35 years till Sunday morning when that girl was there. And when I got back home, full of anger, because it's all coming back again, I heard God speak to me. And I thought, God speaks to people I don't like? How dare he do that? Without my permission. God spoke to me, she said. And I said, really? He speaks to people in the Mother's Union? Just like out of here. I said, really, really, Betty? Yes, she said. Do you know what he said to me? And I said, I'm waiting. She said, Betty, you have changed the love of your daughter into a bitter thing. And she's worth a lot more than that. It broke me, she said. I just broke down and I cried. My my husband's long dead. I have no other children. She was my life. And I realized I haven't been alive for 35 years. I realized that I had controlled this church and kept it where I wanted it. And it hasn't grown and I was proud of it. And I realized that it's my bitter pain poured out on the church. So she said, I was waiting for you to come. She said, I want you to give me permission to repent in front of my church and ask them to forgive me for what I did. And I jumped out of my skin almost. I wanted to go, vindication day has arrived. Do you know she did it? She got up and said, you all know me. And as if they were all in the army, they all go, yes. Absolutely had it where she wanted them and told them this story. With a little bit more detail, she pointed to a lady somewhere up towards the back and said, Grace, do you remember what we plotted in your kitchen? And Grace, (laughs) tremendous here. I saw Grace four years ago, completely changed woman now. And she went through this act of repentance and she said, Today I renounce being the enrolling member of the Mother's Union and I commit myself to praying for him. Do you know what? Betty is still alive. She's 97 years of age. I call her my 90-year-old girlfriend. My wife's a little bit troubled by that description, so I had to introduce them when I got married. I went to see her just before Christmas. I go every year, once or twice, to visit this woman who I thought was immovable, immobile, um, immobile, hard, and I didn't like her at all. And she made my life a misery as a curate. And she's totally blind now. But she said, I know it's you. I know it's you knocking on my door. You knock that special way. Come in and give me a kiss. And let's sit down and pray together. She's an amazingly changed woman. And I said to you, I had a congregation of 20 plus that went to 400. It didn't start until Betty repented. You see, by the grace of God, this formerly hard-hearted woman who I thought I knew all about, surprised me by receiving the compassion of Jesus for a 35-year-old wound that transfigured her life and it set an entire church straight. One month after I left that church to be a rector, it got struck by a bolt of lightning. Nobody was in it at the time. Totally destroyed the building as if it had never existed. And weirdly enough, 
It was covered in their insurance. It wasn't an act of God clause, apparently. And so I showed up a year later with a brand new church being built. And there is Betty at the door saying, welcome home. I love this woman who I loathed once. I'm talking more about my need to change, not just her transfiguration. I'm almost tempted to say she had a reason to be like she was, almost. Do you understand this? She's got a deep pain and a deep wound of her only child and some cheap shot from a vicar thinking this, is he- this will help. Well, it don't. Just, just, just dump statements on people like that. I didn't have a reason. I just didn't like her. And it was me that had to change more. I've tried that, and I'm still wanting to be more compassionate that I am. Everybody needs compassion. There will come a moment that I hope I've got your listening heart more than your sharp tongued words to sort me out. Oh, I need words sometimes, but I'm going to hear them a lot better if it comes on the back of a good dose of being listened to well. Yes? And that's what this was. So coming to our passage, at long last I hear you say, but coming to this rather gutsy passage uh, in Luke's gospel for us, uh, I want you to notice a few things, and I'll just tease them out and then we're done. First of all, there are two categories of, of context. The first five verses are all to do with the individual relationships and everything that bends them out of shape. That's the first five verses. Then verses six to nine, Jesus changes the context to address the entire nation of Israel. So individual and corporate. Let's look at that individual from verses 1 to 5. And what we find in these five verses, and they are so loaded with freight, we have six destructive rhythms, all mentioned, all referred to, all exemplified in these five verses. Six destructive rhythms that undermine and destroy the quality of our relationship with other people. I'll give you them in stanzas of two. The first ones are what I call assumption and prejudice. Some people come to Jesus and say, have you heard what happened to them Galilean Jews? That Pilate slaughtered them and actually mingled their blood with the blood that was offered from animals for their sacrifice. And, of course, the reference to Galileans is interesting. You see, at that time, Palestine is divided into three areas. uh, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And Galilee is the biggest of the three, incidentally. And you'll like this bit, Carol, because Galilee refers to northerners. Because Galilee is the northern part. It stretches approximately from the Golan Heights on the northeastern banks of Lake Galilee, um, where the only ski resort in Israel is to be found. I know, I was there just a few years ago, but it stretches right across to the Mediterranean. This area became the northern kingdom. This area was attacked by the Assyrian army in 721 BC, and the entire population of this area was forcibly deported to areas like Iran, and Iraq to this day. And it remained empty and a wilderness for over 250 years. Nobody lived there, apart from the the odd Assyrian army. Other people were brought in here and there 
Eventually, people did populate the area, but we don't know where they came from. To this day, we just don't know. I checked on Wikipedia. They don't know either uh, where these people came from. So there's a suspicion, some of you will say, and rightly so, about the quality of Northerners. Do you know Northerners have a different accent? Did you know that? And you find this in Scripture. I mean, Peter was from Galilee. He's a northerner. But when he stood in the courtyard listening to Jesus being beaten up and interrogated in Caiaphas' house, and he starts talking to a, a, a servant girl, she says, you're not from this part, are you? <laughs> Your accent's giving you away. You're one of them northerners. You know, and of course, it's just a reference to you're not from around here. We know the people from around here. We know we are okay. But them lot, not quite so sure, are we? I mean, do they vote right? Do they vote for you know who? Whatever it is, there's always a suspicion. So when they come to Jesus and say, hey, did you hear what happened to them Galileans? Them, them northerners. Pilate had a right go at them. It's almost as if they are assuming their prejudice that they suffered because of something wrong about that strange group from that area. Recognize yourself in this, because we all do a bit of this, and our own versions to the stranger. Assumption and prejudice. The second uh, couplet of destructive rhythms as we move through this is violence and disaster. They refer to what Pilate did. And Pilate, incidentally, was a violent despot. Shortly after the time of Jesus, we know that Pilate was recalled to Rome and more than likely executed uh, by the uh, Emperor Tiberius or, or those in his reign because Pilate was an extremely violent man. Here is an example. Isn't it interesting? A violent guy, a despot, and yet, I find it so fascinating and challenging. We see examples of how far he's prepared to go but when he meets Jesus, you don't see this violent man throwing his weight around at all, do you? He starts becoming a philosopher. What is truth? Who are you? He asks Jesus. And it says in Scripture that Jesus stood there like a, a lamb about to be slaughtered, silent, and yet his silence speaks volumes. Pilate even goes so far as to go out to the crowd who are baying for his blood and say, what crime's he done? And of course somebody says, you're no friend of Caesar's. You let this guy off the hook. And suddenly he gets shaken up thinking, how far do I want to go in being touched by the compassion of this man? And so he hardens his heart and wipes his hands in a pre-Shakespearean maneuver in public to absolve his conscience. And yet, you know, I, I read a biography by Anne Rowe a few years ago, uh, best biography I've ever read on Pilate, to try and explore this complex man, where he came from and where he went. And do you know that there is a strong tradition that Pilate and his wife became Christians? In fact, if we had the time and the inclination, we could go to northern Iraq right now and I could take you inside church buildings built uh, before AD 600 in stone. And those churches are dedicated to St. Pilate. In the ancient, earliest expression 
uh, of the Christian church, long before the Western church, there was the Eastern Assyriac church. And they worshipped amongst all the other saints in their panoply, Pilate. Because there's this strong tradition that he got changed by Jesus. Now, I don't know how true that is. There's a strong tradition. Okay? That's all I'm telling you. But the image we get of the Pilate who just <laughs> kills people, chucks their blood around, who has to be recalled because this guy's out of control and is terminated, stands in front of Jesus. And you see him changing, don't you? Right in front of your own eyes, so to speak. Because you see, it's the compassion of Jesus. I find this is the great thing about Jesus Christ, you know, Son of God, is that he always sees more in you than you see in you. Even in the worst of us, he can see the best in us. And there's something about the compassion of Jesus, isn't there, who appeals to the best in us. Whether we say yes to it or not is another thing. But you see Pilate wrestling with it. I have a Cockney friend from London who just retired now as a Baptist minister. His name is John. And uh, he invented something called reconciliation prayer walks. And he walked along uh, areas where there's been violence, etc., etc. current violence, ancient violence. And he was doing prayer walking in Russia. And he took a few days off to go to Red Square to have some free time. And with his wife, Yvonne, is enjoying Red Square. But he went on to tell us, because he's a rhino. Uh, oh, oh, you weren't at the conference, were you? I was explaining to people at the conference I belong to a, a retreat club for traveling preachers. Most of us are Anglican. Um, our full-time job is uh, traveling as speakers. And we've been meeting for over 30 years. And we call ourselves the rhinos. It stands for really holy, if naughty, occasionally. Just acknowledging our fallen estate, not appealing to it. And John is a member of us. And uh, he shared this story when he came back from Russia. And he said, I'm in Red Square. I'm enjoying the sights. And then I feel this strong compulsion of God's voice in my heart. And this is what I feel God said and put in my heart. I want you to go and knock on the main entrance of the Kremlin. And I want you to tell Boris Yeltsin that I, the Lord God, love him. What? Am I losing it or something? What was in that lemonade, I ask you? <laughs> and it, you know, he says to Yvonne, I've got this compulsion. And, sh and she said, I'll pray for you. I have a feeling I mightn't be seeing you for a while. <laughs> and he laughs it off with her. It won't go away. It just grew in intensity. So about half an hour later, he gave up the battle and thought, well, it's probably just a wild, wild thought. I mean, they won't let me get within 100 yards of the door. Come on. So he decides to try it. So he starts walking towards the main entrance of the Kremlin. And there's two guys on either side, like stiff statues, holding their rifles. And he gets up to them, thinking they're going to do one of the maneuvers you get. It's like they didn't see me, he says. I walked straight past them. And I come to the door, this massive big door. And believe it or not, he says, he had a doorbell. Did you know the Kremlin? <laughs> did you know the Kremlin's got a doorbell? He said, I didn't expect that for some reason. So I rings the doorbell. And within moments it opens. So there's, there's an old man stood there, 
and he's got a tuxedo and a bow tie. He looks like a butler. So from now on, John, in the story, as he tells it, calls him the butler. He said, and he asked me in English, what do you want? And he went, what do I tell him? I mean, come on, what do I tell him? So in a flash, he says, <coughs> hello. It's a very good Brit thing to do, hello. Uh, my name is John, and I've come to tell your president that the Lord God loves him. And this man says, come in. So he goes in. And he said, would you just wait in here? And he took him to a side room. He actually said he brought me coffee. I'm drinking coffee. He was on his own for 20 minutes waiting for the police to arrive to take this madman away. The door eventually did open. In comes the butler with Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin does not speak English at all. And the butler said, the president wants you to tell him the exact words you spoke to me when I asked you why you were calling. Exact words. He thinks a minute, he says, hello. My name is John, and I've come to tell your president that the Lord God loves him. And they have this little conversation, and back and forth, and then the butler says again, the president's mother was a believer in the old faith. She was um, Russian Orthodox. And she died about four months ago. And as she was dying, she could hardly talk. And the president bent over his mother to give her a farewell kiss. And before she died, her last word to her husband, uh, sorry, to her son, uh, who uh, was not a believer, he was raised in, in some ways in the Orthodox Church, but he didn't get to where he was through believing. Not in that, that day. As she lay dying, he bent over to kiss her and almost with her last breath said something peculiar. She just said to him, John chapter 1, verse 4, and died. So they didn't even know, because he, he doesn't carry a Bible in his inside pocket, and he hasn't stayed in hotels with Gideon, you know what, in the chest of drawers there. <laughs> so he thinks, what's John chapter 1 all about? You know, you lot and I lot know the Bible, instant, even in our unsaved secular society, you know, he hadn't a clue. So for a few months, do you know what John chapter 1 is all about? Is it a new novel or something? It's a good way to get the Bible talked about, isn't it? Eventually, he puts it all together. And they looked up John chapter 1 verse 4, which says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. How about that? And so the butler says to John, the president wants you to tell him what you mean, that the Lord God loves him. So he told him about Jesus. And the ending of the conversation, which lasted about an hour, Boris Yeltsin is led to Christ in his own power. He had a severe alcoholic condition, which virtually killed him. Uh, physically, the damage had already been done, but he was healed of alcoholism. And for the remaining time that he was in power and out of power, which was not terribly long afterwards, as you know, his health declined very rapidly, practice his faith. I would never thought Pilate could change. Somehow we're very comfortable compartmentalizing where people are. We think we know their script and that's it. And we tell everybody what we think about them. Uh, we have no expectation that they'll change and we get precisely what we expect. No change. 
unless that is, unless that is, we can recover the compassionate heart of Jesus for others, especially the ones we think are impossible to change. Whether they do or not is another chapter in our story. But I think the challenge that Jesus gives to those who are consigning the Galileans to destruction, they must be extra bad, is they're no worse than you, and you too need to repent in other words. You too need compassion, so you can change your ways and walk in the light. You get it? And Jesus introduces another issue, doesn't he? I did say violence, but he did say disaster. And the disaster, of course, is the pool, is the tower at Siloam that comes down and kills 18 Gentiles. And the way he tells this story is the way that he receives the story of Pilate. It's all recent stuff. This is not ancient history. This is not something that happened in the 1800s, so to speak. This happened maybe within a year or so. So it's still fresh in the memory. But do you remember the tower that fell down, killed 18 anonymous Jews? Were they any worse? No, they weren't. But the impressive thing about Jesus is even wounded places get compassion to him because, you know, Siloam is mentioned one more time in the New Testament. And you're more familiar with this reference than the one I've just used from Luke 13. Because in John 9, there was a man born blind. And nobody knew why he was born blind. They guessed. They thought they knew. Was it his dad's sins? His grandparents' sins? Was the Freemasonry somewhere in the background? You know, we're all looking for reasons. And Jesus, thankfully, is totally uninterested. Doesn't go there at all. Even though he gets the invite. He just spits on the guy. Sorry. He makes a mud pie mixture and puts it on his eyes. And what does he say to this guy? Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Did you say Siloam? Isn't that the place where the tower came down killing people? Can't you pray for my healing here in this anchor church building? It's such a nice space. I hope you buy it, by the way. Bless it and buy it, Lord. Amen. That's it sorted. Wouldn't it be so much nicer to pray in this place for my healing? You want to send me to Siloam? Do you know what's happened there? Don't you know the disaster there? I don't want to go anywhere near it. You go to Siloam. And as you think about Siloam today, what do you remember it more for? A tower falling down and killing 18 people or a blind boy walked out in faith and got healed? If you're telling me it's the blind boy, then you're telling me there are two healings. The individual and the way you connect with the place. It's different now. Och, we're not amnesiaing the fact of what happened, but we're not letting the disaster shape the place anymore. We're challenging it. I was impressed that three months after Ground Zero had happened, I went to Lower Manhattan with my wife, Roz. We crossed over from the cafe we'd just had a meal in to the boarded-up site. Three months after the disaster, this tower came down, and it took out a lot more, and the reasons behind it were vicious. But you know what I found? I found the presence of God because there were people all around the site praying. There's somebody in the corner, a couple with a sign saying, would you like prayer? And they had a queue. They weren't going to let Ground Zero be the last thing said about that site. They were not denying what had happened, but we want to say there's more to life than this. The compassionate presence of Jesus can equally stand on this horror ground 
to make it holy ground. We do this in our faith all the time, you know, because the very site where Jesus Christ was executed upon the cross was the former rubbish dump and also the site of human sacrifice in the the pre-exile period. It was well known as a dirty, rotten place. But you don't think about Calvary like that anymore. You don't go with a gas mask to the place, do you? You go with a reverent heart. Because wherever you think the location of Calvary now stands is holy ground. Because of the compassionate act, the once-for-all sacrifice of the Son on that rubbish dump site, changed not just the message for us, but actually the location on which it happened. Amen? The truth we've got to reclaim, because Jesus died for the world, and that just doesn't mean people, it means the world. And everything in it is his grace. Let's get this done. Assumption and prejudice, violence and disaster, and judgmentalism and denial. Judging the other, they're worse sinners. And denial, we're not that bad. And Jesus says, you all need to repent. I won't spend anything like the same amount of time as we move now quickly from the individual to the corporate in verses 6 to 9, where Jesus introduces the fig tree or the vine, a familiar imagery in Jewish mentality by this time of the nation. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, is a whole prophetic piece of God saying, You, O Israel, are my chosen vine, whom I have showered love and attention upon, and yet you reject me. So the imagery is well established when Jesus introduces this. Jeremiah 5.17 describes the invasion of the Babylonians in Israel like a stripping of the vineyards. Jesus saw a fig tree that was barren on his way out of Bethany one day and cursed it, now as later, it was no more. So when he refers to the fig tree, they all know it's talking about not him or her, but us, this nation. And notice the language, incidentally, in this passage, especially verse 7. I'm reading, incidentally, from the Passion Translation, which does a rather good job on this passage, where you find the owner of the vineyard comes to his gardener and says, for the last three years I've come to gather figs from my tree, but it remains fruitless. Let's chop it down. Do you notice the reference to three years? This is Jesus prophetically saying, my time is coming to an end with this nation. And I just don't see any change. In fact, whoever's going to preach on the end passage of chapter 13 in Luke, you have Jesus saying to the city, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've been rejecting the prophetic word all your life. How I've longed to gather you in. But you just kept refusing. It's the same kind of issue that he's addressing at the beginning of the chapter, it seems to me. And I love this piece, and with this I'm nearly done. He says to the gardener, we're done here. And I think the gardener is a type of Christ because the gardener says, please don't do that. Can we give it one more chance? Can we give it one more year? I'll get the best manure in town, the one that smells the most, if you know what I mean. I, I will really ladle it on this and I'll cut a channel. I'll put fresh, I'll work hard to try and tease out of this dead fig tree the possibility of life and fruitfulness. Don't kill it. 
but you keep it just one more chance. And that's how it ends, isn't it? You know, and if it doesn't, well, you do what you've got to do. And we don't know if the owner said, okay, we'll give it a chance. I think the implication is yes. But I think Jesus is like that gardener. He's the compassionate Christ. Other people might want to write that person off. But if you give them one more chance, do it. I might think the situation is irretrievable and cannot change. But would you give it just one more chance, Jesus? Will you help us chuck the manure when it needs to go and cut the channel for the water to flood? Will you help us? Will you not judge us? Will you give us just one more chance at this? Everybody needs compassion. And sometimes when we're tempted to write other people off, Jesus wants to whisper in our hearts, let's give it one more chance. Give you and I one more chance. Give them one more chance. But it isn't going to happen unless we acquire more profoundly and deeply the compassion of Christ that leads us into appropriate action. So I'm going to close this talk uh, with a poem like what I wrote. And it's got uh, three verses. And I want you to say the fourth line of each verse out loud with me. And the fourth line is this. Don't let go of me. Say it with me. Don't let go of me. One more team. One more time. Don't let go of me. Fourth line, remember. God of the last chance. The next chance. The only chance. Don't let go of me. Give me another chance. Son of the shepherd heart. The broken heart. The bursting heart. Don't let go of me. Give me new heart. Spirit of the eagle-eyed vision. The heavenly vision. The nightmare vision. Don't let go of me. Give me renewed vision through Jesus Christ, my Lord. Amen. Of me. Well done.